0: Good morning. That was lovely. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, you are you are with us in the fire and the flood. We praise you. We praise you for your nearness, and right now we just pray that you'll help us to understand your word. Help us to help us to get it and apply it. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Poe Bronson, he wrote an article in Time Magazine back in 2006 entitled, How We Spend Our Leisure Time. And one of the things he discovered during his research is that Americans today have more leisure time than people did 40 years ago, a lot more. We have about 45 minutes more of leisure time every day. How are we spending it? Anybody want to guess? Good guess. This was 2006, but good guess. How are we spending it? How do you think? Watching TV, TV. Mm -hmm. absolutely. The Barna Group, they did a study what Americans are watching in 2014. And in it, they explained all the shows that we're watching and the huge amounts of time that we spent doing it. What I found interesting was a statement in the findings that said this, I quote, practicing Christians tend to watch more television than non-Christians. Interestingly, church attendance seems to make little difference in the number of viewing hours. Ouch. Now that study seems to line up with the next study. In 2016, Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries, they partnered together for a study, for a survey known as The State of Theology. They wanted to find out what Americans believe about salvation, about God, the Bible, and just fundamental convictions that shape our society. So, 3,000 participants were given a test of 47 questions. What did the survey reveal? One writer summarized it this way, Americans fail, Theology 101. People are mostly confused and heretical when it comes to the most basic doctrines about our Christianity. One writer put it this way, we are a nation of heretics. That's the nation as a whole, that's not a surprise. But what about evangelical Christians? Well, how did they do? Well, Lifeway made some changes in the way they did things. So in order for a participant to be labeled evangelical, they had to meet some requirements. First of all, they had to believe that the Bible is their highest authority, that personal evangelism is important, and that trusting in Jesus' death on the cross is the only way to of salvation. 586 of their respondents qualified for that distinction. Everyone expected them to do better. Nobody expected them to do worse. And yet on several key doctrines, they did worse than the population at large. Kenneth Briggs, he was a former religion reporter, and he wrote a book, The Invisible Bestseller, Searching for the Bible in America, he describes a two-year pilgrimage across the country, visiting hundreds of churches to find Christians who were still literate in their own sacred text. He says practically everyone has a Bible. Many families have four or five. But he characterized our love for the Bible as an artifact, a keepsake or a lucky rabbit's foot. He said this talisman of faith mainly stays on the shelf or the mantle next to the urn filled with grandpa's ashes. Interestingly, he said it was in a prison, not a church, where he encountered the most vibrant and intimate familiarity with God's word. Okay, apparently we have become a nation of TV-watching heretics. Uh, We are people that do not know the word of God. We certainly don't love it and hunger for it. Now, that's to be expected from the general population. But what about the true redeemed believer? What is their relationship going to be with the word of God? Now, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Peter? We're going to go to chapter 1, verse 22. Now, you also might want to use your printouts on this because as I'm reading, I want you to mark any of the phrases or expressions that would be synonymous with salvation or becoming a Christian, okay? Phrases or expressions that would be synonymous with salvation or becoming a Christian, here we go. Chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Okay. The title of this week's chapter was adorned with beauty through God's word. And the focus was primarily on this passage here. So we're going to try to dig into this. And, um, I asked you to mark the phrases or the expressions that Peter used to describe salvation. That's because, or one of the reasons why is because we're going to see Peter give some instruction, some instruction. That's a result of your salvation. Okay, it's it's not going to be instruction for the general public. He's going to be talking to the church, to believers. And let's take a look at that. Verse 22, he says, "Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls." Okay, did you have that marked? Was that one of the things you marked? Okay, Peter's describing salvation here, isn't he? Okay, he's believers are obedient to the truth. Believers are obedient to the gospel. We're going to see the word obedience and faith. They're going to be used interchangeably throughout Scripture. And um, we want to make a mental note of this because in chapter 3, we're going to see that he talks about husbands that are disobedient to the word, and he's going to have some instruction to their wives. And so when we get there, we're going to know that he's talking about women that are married to unbelievers. So that's coming, chapter 3. For now, for here, he refers to believers as those who have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for. All right, now you might wanna mark that word because that word is a term of explanation. It's about to explain something to us. It's about to show us the result of something. Okay, in this case, we're being told what the, the, the result of being in obedience to the truth, having our souls purified. For, what is that for? a sincere love of the brethren. Your souls have been purified in salvation for a sincere love of the brethren. Here's the first point on your book. Number one, a result of salvation is that believers are a part of a family with a common father. Now, you already knew that. That's not anything new, but I just wanted us to to set that down and notice that Peter is using the language of family when he's talking about believers. And I want you to notice that first word in that phrase, that word love, that's the word Philadelphia. Okay, so that's talking about brotherly, kindly, that mutual affectionate love that we have. Okay, here's number two on your paper. A result of salvation is sincere brotherly affection for other believers. An indicator that you are a believer is that you're going to have a genuine affection for other believers. Right after um, I got married, I started to work at a bank. And it was um, like a little family-owned bank. And one of the first things that you were taught was the name and the face of your biggest depositor. (laughs) They wanted you to know, all right, this guy has a lot of money in this bank, and if he were to leave, the bank's going to be would be in serious trouble. So be nice to him uh, from a business perspective, Do do everything he asks, be very accommodating. So when that man walked in the door, boy, the bank just kicked into gear. We turned into this just big loving family and our beloved uncle was walking in. I mean, people would go by, good morning, Mr. So-and-so, it's nice to see you, Mr. So-and-so. All the little big shots, they would come out of their office just like they happened to be passing by so that they could talk and make small talk and shoot the breeze with him. Now, he may have been a wonderful guy, and certainly my co-workers were wonderful people, but everything about that relationship was feigned. It was staged. It was very superficial. It was very shallow. It was not genuine. It was not sincere. Okay, Peter is telling us in this passage, you have been saved for the exact opposite. You have been saved for something that is genuine and affectionate and loving and sisterly. I want us to take a look at that word sincere, and I have it on your papers because it's interesting. In the Greek, the word for sincere is anapokritos, And it means genuine, but what they do in the Greek is they take the word for hypocrisy and they turn it into a negative. So that word means without hypocrisy. Now in the Greek, the word for hypocrite was hypocrites, which was originally the word for actors. Now you might remember this if you, um, uh, in classical Greek drama, the actors wore masks and if you were in the drama club in high school, you know they would use those two masks as your logo. That's why the actors would put on a mask, and then they would change them if they had to hide their identity or if they wanted to project a certain image. So a uh, hypocrites was one that was under the mask, and anopocritos meant without the mask. It was undisguised. It was unfeigned. Now. This is a good word for women to understand. We have been saved for a sincere love of the brethren. We have been saved for a mask-free love of the brethren. That means that we have been saved to walk through that door without our masks and love one another why? Because we share a common father. We are sisters. Because we share a common history. We, have, we are sinners, and we have been saved by grace. We have been saved by grace. We don't have to wear our masks anymore. We have been saved to love without them. John Piper says that where the gospel flourishes, people share their own soul. We don't have to go around being all superficial and shallow like the bank employees. You don't have to put a smiley face on when you come here. If you're hurting or struggling or you're frazzled and anxious, you don't have to put on a mask. Now you might put on a brave face with a neighbor, but you don't do it with a sister. I wonder if any of you struggle with this. Maybe you come here, or you come to church, and you put on your mask. Maybe you're hurting, or you're lonely, or you're confused or you're anxious and you don't want people to know that about you, or you don't want people to think of you like that, so you put on a mask. We have been saved to love without them. Now, because we are saved, and because we have a sincere love for the brethren, what is our response to be? There's there's a command here. And the command is, fervently love from the heart. The word love there, now that's the word agape. That's the unconditional, sacrificial action love that God himself has for sinful men. All right, here's, we're gonna use that, uh, we're gonna define that on our paper. Number three, agape love is sacrificial and unconditional and desires the recipient's highest good whether they deserve it or not. Okay, that's the command. An unbeliever cannot do that one, okay? That is a supernatural love. Now, what I want us to see is I want us to take a quick look at that word uh, fervent, fervently, because in the Greek, that term means to stretch to the furthest limit of a muscle's capacity. It means with every muscle strained. They would use it to describe a runner who was just running at maximum outpoint output, and his muscles were taunt, and they were stretching and straining to the limit. Okay, that's the picture. That's, that's how we are to be loving. We are to be stretching and stretching to the limits. So number, se- number four in your paper, the Christian possesses brotherly love, but needs to stretch to the limit and love others the way God loves him. Helen Rosevere, she was a medical missionary to Belgium Congo in the 1950s and 60s. She was there at a time where there was a lot of political unrest. And she tells the story of a time when teenage rebel soldiers kidnapped her and forced her to drive a truck full of young soldiers. She said it was raining and the truck didn't have lights or windshield wipers, it had a mud road, and the teenage lieutenant that was sitting next to her was fiddling with the, um, the, the pin of a hand grenade as she drove. She began to sense that two of her young Christian friends had jumped onto the truck. She couldn't see them, but she sensed they were there. Well, her captors, um, they forced her to drive the truck off the road to find fuel, and then they forced her out of the truck. Now, she and to stand off to the side. Now, she senses that her two friends are there, and she says to them, she hissed to them, get away from me. They're going to kill me. Do not stand with me. But they would not move. She thought they couldn't hear her, so she repeated it. But finally, they answered to her, doctor, that is why we're here. You shall not die alone. And she goes on to say that they had every indication that they were to be brutally murdered, but for some unexplained reason, the three of them were left there on the side of the road in the rain. But you see, this is the kind of love that Peter is talking about. Genuine, sincere affection stretching to the limits. Mask-free affection that's willing to jump on the truck. Let's move on to our next verse. Verse 23 says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. All right, now this verse is going to tell us some more about salvation. It says, We have been born again. And then it goes on to say, through the living and abiding word of God. All right, two weeks ago, we said that God is completely sovereign in salvation. We read that he caused us to be born again to a living hope. This week, we're going to add something to that. And here's our next point. Number five, God's word is an agent in salvation. God's word is an agent in salvation. He has chosen to use his word to bring about salvation. A person either has to read the word of God or hear the word of God in order to be saved. All right, now you might think, well, isn't there another way? Well, Peter answers that. He says people are born again through the living and enduring word of God. You don't see anyone in the New Testament becoming a Christian apart from hearing the gospel, hearing the word of God. Okay, now, do you realize what that means? That means that it is not enough for us to be nice women and do nice things and be involved in nice ministries. We are going to have to speak the gospel. We have got to articulate and share the word of God. I've, I've shared this story with you before. I went through high school thinking that I would share my faith by being a nice and cheerful. And then if anybody asked me, what must I do to be saved, then I would talk, and then I would be ready to give an account for the hope that is within me. But um, the reality is, nobody looked at my life and went, oh, she's nice, what must I do to be saved? It (laughs) did not happen. The only time I ever really had gospel conversations, the only impact I had with my high school friends was when I spoke to them about God's word. Okay, here is our next point, number six. In our evangelism to the lost, we must get people to the word of God. And then we're gonna see God will do his sovereign work in the salvation of a soul. Okay, now here's what else it means. It means that if you have children or grandchildren you're going to want to fill their lives with the Word of God. Why? Because it is the Word of God and it is an agent in salvation. Uh, At Christmas time, I was trying to talk to my two and a half year old granddaughter about the Christmas story and I had the little nativity set there with all the little pieces and I was trying to give her the lesson and she wanted nothing to do with it, she had other things in mind. And I thought, oh, yeah, I I thought, okay, yeah, the same thing happened with her daddy. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have to do the same methods with her that I used on him. And so at lunchtime, when she was strapped in her little high chair, and I gave her her food, I said, okay, now, Gigi, instead of watching the news clips like I would have ordinarily done, I thought, okay, Gigi's going to give you a Bible story. And she was very attentive. I've um, shared the story before about how when my boys were little and I was just um, decided I wanted them to know the Word of God and they were two busy little guys, I couldn't get to sit still. They weren't interested in a lesson and sitting still. So I thought, um, okay, I was desperate. And so um, in the morning when they got up for breakfast, I decided, okay, I made two bowls of cereal and two pieces of peanut butter toast. I set them on their little barstools. I threw the food in front of them. Then I ran and got my Bible and I started reading and they were chomping and chewing and sitting still, and actually very attentive. And so then I thought, okay, I probably need to ask some questions to make sure they're understanding things. So I would do that. And if they didn't understand it, I would try to explain it to them. Sometimes we'd go back and read it again. But um, for the most part, and, and then if they couldn't answer my questions, they didn't get down from their chair. So that was very, a lot of incentive to stay focused and pay attention. Well, it worked very, so well for breakfast, I thought I'm going to do it again for lunch. And so at lunchtime, I'd make a grilled cheese sandwich, I would cut up some apples, sit them on their bar stools, throw the food in front of them, and then run for my Bible, and we'd start the whole thing over again. And we'd start with review about what we talked about in the morning. And if they couldn't remember, or they didn't understand it, we went back and we talked about it again, and then we read the news stuff. And again, if they weren't paying attention, if they didn't understand, they didn't get down from their seat, it, 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 we had some good conversations. Now, the beauty The beauty of that is that God's word is living. It is the living word of God. It's not an artifact. It's not a keepsake. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot. It's the living word of God. That means that I could talk to my four-year-old and my two-year-old in the morning about God's word, and then all day long, the truth and the reality of it would show up. If there was complaining or fighting, or impatience, or selfishness, or uh, discouragement, or fear. We were learning, God speaks to us about those things. Why, we just read about it this morning. God's word is living. We were learning that God's word was relevant. It was relevant to a two-year-old. It was relevant to a four-year-old. It was relevant to the 30-year-old mother. Why? because it was enduring. It was the enduring and living Word of God. God was not far off and distant. He speaks to us through His Word. The Word of God is enduring. It's not like your computer that becomes obsolete the moment you walk out the store or that needs constantly updated. I can remember before I started my mealtime lessons, and I've shared this before. I was driving home in the car. I had my oldest with me. He wasn't quite two. And he was singing along to the radio, or maybe the radio wasn't even playing. He was singing, I want to dance with somebody. I want to feel the heat of somebody. <laughs> and I'm looking at him. First of all, I'm thinking, well, that's inappropriate. And, but it just really hit me. I thought, wow, I, you're just picking that up from the radio. I haven't worked with you on it, haven't tried to teach you about it. And so that was a real turning point. I thought, okay, no more. I'm not listening to the um, secular music anymore in the car. I'm not going to listen to it at home. Now, why? Because I thought it was evil? Because I'm some kind of legalist? No, because I could, I could see this kid is picking stuff up from the radio. He can learn, he can remember. And I thought, well, if he can do that, then I want him to know God's word. And so I began, I went and got myself some, some tapes of Bible songs and Bible verses, and we would listen to those in the car. And, and I thought to myself, okay, we're gonna sing God's word. We're gonna read God's word. We're gonna talk about it all through the day. Why? Why such a push for God's word? Here's our next point. Number seven, to expose people to God's word is to expose them to God and his special revelation. God's word is his revelation about himself, and he uses that to speak to us. All right, let's move on. Chapter two, verse one says this. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Okay, I want us to start by seeing the first imperative, the first command in this chapter, and it is the word long. You might want to mark that. That's the command. Now, I want to give you a definition for that. It's actually on your paper. Okay, Peter says we are to long, we are to crave, we are to deeply desire and have a great affection for the word of God. And Peter calls it the pure word of God, the pure, genuine, unadulterated word of God. You see, back in Peter's day, the merchants sold milk. Some of them would water it down and it would be diluted. It was called deceitful milk, okay? So Peter specifies. He says, long for the pure milk of God's word, not diluted, not deceitful milk. When I was a new mom, I didn't have all the internet and blogs and all the endless amounts of information at my fingertips. I had one thing. I had focus on the family. And um, I had one radio station and it played, sometimes it played preaching, sometimes it played music, but at 9.30 in the morning and in the evening, it ran James Dobson, Focus on the Family. And they would always have somebody on there talking about family. It was either about marriage or parenting, or maybe it was something about politics or culture that had effects on uh, the family and they were always um, promoting some book or video or some educational tool that kind of went along with their programs and I was all, I scooped up everything they were peddling now here's the problem I was a young mom and I didn't have a lot of time and so I um and, and a lot of times these, let me back, go back. A lot of times these books, they were written by pastors. They were Christian authors. They were usually very, an easy read with things kind of spelled out. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. And, and so they were very appealing. But when I, being a young mom, I would often have to make a choice. Okay, am I going to read that focus on the family book that's about the family? Or am I going to read my Bible? Which might be, um, it might be harder. It might not have everything. It might be a little more work to to read. It may not have things spelled out, and it may not necessarily be about the, the family that day. And so, oftentimes, I would find myself reaching for that focus on the family book, and I would tell myself, "Well, it has Bible in it. I mean, it it it, it has Christian things in it. So I will I will count that as my Bible reading. That will be my devotions for today. Now, um. I can only imagine that if that's how it was for me 25 years ago, what it must be like for you and what you have competing with your Bible reading right now. You have devotions that can come straight to your inbox, and you can just kind of read through those. You have endless amounts of preachers and sermons and all kinds of things online. For Twitter, you can just follow, you know, pithy little statements that are very convicting and profound. You can do all of that. Now, am I saying that you shouldn't use those things? Well, that depends. Do you want to grow in salvation? Because Peter is making a very strong case for the undiluted, pure, unadulterated word of God and how it is used to help us grow in salvation. Now, am I saying that these things are not helpful or, or, and that you could use them to grow? Uh, wait a minute, what am I saying? Am I saying, <laughs> am I saying they're not helpful or that they could be useful to help you grow? Okay, they can be. What I'm saying is they're not a substitute. They're not your substitute with just you and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, I want to be very careful here because there are websites out there that are wonderful. They have tools and resources to help you study. So I, I, I want to be careful. Those, those can be very useful and helpful. But there are also a lot out there that are not pure. And there's also a lot that are so diluted, they're not worth your time. All right, here's our next point. Number eight, Peter commands Christians to crave the pure, unadulterated, undiluted word of God. All right, that's the command. To crave, to crave the pure milk of the word. Now, why are we to do that? Well, why are we to crave the word of the Lord? Well, he tells us that when he starts this verse with the word, therefore, in verse 1. And you've probably heard the expression, when you see the word, therefore, find out what it's there for. Well, that word is a word of conclusion, and uh, it's connecting It's connecting the stuff you're about to read with the stuff that you just read. One pastor explained that when you see the word, therefore, it is like saying that the next phrase is invalid if unattached. That's a good way to remember it. Now, if you're using your observation um, pages, I will mark the word therefore in a certain way. That way I can see it, and that way I might even draw some, uh, draw some arrows back and forth. Now, on your paper, I showed you um, the two different ways that it's marked. I kind of used the top one. The other one with the three dots, that's another way you could use it if you're marking. There's other ways. You can do however you want, but it's a great idea to mark them. Okay, now let's go back. Peter says he uses that word, therefore, so we know that what follows will not make any sense if it's unattached to what we just read. Okay, so what did we just read? Well, we read that the word of God was enduring. We read that it was preached to them. We read that they were born again through the living and enduring word of God therefore, therefore, were to crave the word of God. Okay, they were to long for the word of God because it was living, because it was enduring, because it was an instrument in their salvation in the first place. Okay, and if you're a Christian, that's why you're to long for it as well. All right, here's our next point, number nine. Believers are to crave the word of God because it is living and enduring and an agent in their salvation. That's why we are to crave the word of God. Let's talk about how. Peter says we are to long for it like newborn babies. And the word he uses here is very specific for babies. He's not talking about toddlers that munch on solid foods and still drink and still are nursing. He's talking about a newborn baby that drinks only milk. Now, I cannot think of a better group than this to use that analogy, because all of you here know what it's like to see a hungry baby. Um, last year, we had three grandsons born in my family um, within two months of each other. So we had a lot of nursing babies. And one grandson in particular <clears throat> would not take a bottle from me, Judson. And, um, <laughs> he's, he started out where he would take it, but then all of a sudden he quit. And um, unfortunately, we, we don't know why, whether we left too much time in between trying it, who knows, but I, we didn't find out about it until I was alone one night without with, with him by myself. And so I went to feed him, and he just, he, would have, he just didn't want the bottle. And so I was trying kind of various ways to maybe to trick him or confuse him, and, and, and he was not going to be tricked. <laughs> And as time went on, he began to get um, hungry and frustrated. And I'm trying to uh, console him. I'm trying to distract him. I'm like, okay, do you want a passy? Do you want me to rock you? Do you want me to bounce you? Do you want me to walk around? You know, you're doing anything you can come up with. I'm trying to console him. I'm trying to distract him. I was having no success. He wanted his mother. He just wanted his mother. All right, now Peter... Peter says that we're to long for the pure word of God like a newborn wants his mother, like a newborn craves the pure milk. Do you get the picture? You get the visual? We're not to be satisfied with anything else. We're not to be distracted by anything else. We're to long for it. We're to desire it. Now, some of you may be thinking, I've never craved God's word like that. Or maybe I used to, but I don't now. Some of you may be thinking, I enjoy the word of God, but I couldn't compare it to the way a baby craves for pure milk. Well, I want us to see what verse 1 says. It says, Therefore, putting aside all malice, and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. Often um, over the years, I've often heard women lament that um, they aren't in the word like they, sh- they should be. They wanna be, but they aren't be. Or maybe um, they just can't stay committed to reading their Bibles every day or with any type of regularity. Or maybe that they don't find their Bible reading in their quiet time very exciting. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. Sometimes it's because you have a house full of babies, and they seem to just be conspiring together to keep you so busy and distracted, and you can't even think straight. And um, you just crave sleep. Sometimes it's because you don't know how to study your Bibles. Sometimes it's because you may not even be a believer. But sometimes it's because you're filled with the flesh. And you have no appetite for the things of God because you're filling up on junk. Does that describe you? Peter says putting aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Those are attributes of the flesh. We can't feed on fleshly things and expect to have an appetite for God. Same thing goes with the world. We can't fill up on the world and expect to have an appetite for God. You know, if you're home all day and you've got that TV on and you're watching one sitcom after another, or maybe you're binge watching some TV series, or maybe you're constantly checking your phone and you got a stream of Facebook and Instagram so that your mind is constantly filling up with worldly and fleshly things, listen, don't do that and then wonder why you don't have an appetite for God. Sometimes I'll see women that are really struggling to get excited about God or to know God, or maybe they're just struggling in general, and particularly with things like body image and contentment and coveting. And you know what? I would just, sometimes I just wanna go and cut off their internet and their cable so they can just detox a little bit. Here's our next point, number 10. We crave, we fail to crave the milk of God's word, when we feed our flesh and indulge our sinful behaviors. Now, Peter points out five different vices here. He talks about malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander. We've talked about these in the past, and you can notice this word hypocrisy is here again. The mask wearing on the list. Has it ever occurred to you that we struggle with being envious and slanderous and hypocritical because we're not craving the word of God. Peter says, put these aside. And the word he uses here is is a word about taking off a dirty coat. Put it aside, take it off, put it aside. And we wanna keep in mind, he's not talking to the general population. He's talking to believers. And so on one hand, we know that he understands that we struggle with these things. And yet on the other hand, he also tells us that we can put them aside. He knows we can put them aside. Now, why is that? Because sin has no hold on us. Remember, we talked about this last week. We are currently being saved from the power of sin. Okay, um, number 11 on our papers. Before craving can be realized, there must be a definite break with sinful behaviors. Which you have the power to do, by the way, through the Holy Spirit. All right, now here's something else I want you to see. Those five things, malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander, those are relationship sins. Those, those are things that we do to other people. Those are things that are done against other people, and in particular, our fellow believers that we are to be in community with and loving and doing life together. So listen, we don't want to miss this. We want to make the connection. If we are failing to crave the word of God, where is it likely to show up? In our relationships. All right, that means in a room like this, if we are struggling with our relationships, if there are cliques, or division, or envy, or slander, one of the possible explanations for that is that we're not craving the Word of God. And if we're not craving it, and we're not hungry for it, then we're not putting off these sinful behaviors, and it's affecting our relationships. You see, We have to ask ourselves, how can we take in a steady diet of Facebook and Pinterest and Instagram and not grow envy or hypocrisy or slander? We would be very foolish women if we think that we can take in a steady stream of junk food and then be able to love with the affection and the stretching, like we see in this book. They don't go together. All right, I I wanna close. My last point is a question, and I hope it's one that you'll give some thought to in the days ahead, and that is number 12. What are you spiritually craving? What are you craving? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living, and we thank you that it's enduring. We thank you that it's an agent in salvation. I pray you'll help us to be women that are faithful with it, that we will speak it, that we will share it, and that we will crave it. Help us to be women that crave your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.